Hi, this is the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. Prior to graduate school, I considered myself a pretty good writer. I remember my 12th grade teacher wrote at the top of one of my papers, please become a teacher so you can help other people write like you. So I was pretty shocked when, in my first doctoral course, my then academic advisor wrote at the top of my first paper, quote, you have a lot of work to do to improve your writing. Now, she was absolutely correct. Writing is challenging. It's subject to one's cognitive and other resources. It's culturally and context specific, and yet it's also improvable. And there are a few people better qualified to talk about writing and how to improve it than my guest today, Dr. Steve Graham. Dr. Steve Graham is a Regents Professor and the Warner Professor in the Division of Leadership and Innovation in Teachers College at Arizona State University. For over 40 years, he has studied how writing develops, how to teach it effectively, and how writing can be used to support reading and learning. His research involves typically developing writers and students with special needs in both elementary and secondary schools, with much of his research occurring in classrooms and urban schools. In 2019, he was honored with the Career Achievement Award from Division 15 of the American Psychological Association. Today, we're going to talk about his address in recognition of that award, which was published as an article in Educational Psychologist entitled, A Walk Through the Landscape of Writing, Insights from a Program of Writing Research. So Steve, congratulations on your very well-deserved award, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. So let's start off with this. I'm curious, what got you interested in writing and writing research? Well, this is a kind of a sordid little tale. I, <laughs> I had to laugh a little bit when you were talking about feeling that you were a really good writer in high school and then all of a sudden finding out hmm, maybe not as quite as good as you thought within a particular <laughs> genre. Yep. My experience was a little different. I didn't think that I was a very good writer and college helped confirm that uh, for me. I flunked a composition course at the same time that I flunked a course in French, and I lived six and a half years in France, so that was a pretty tough semester for me. When I went to work on my doctoral degree, I did reading as a minor, and my dissertation was a study taking a look at types of miscues that kids with learning disabilities and typically developing kids of the same age and also at the same reading level made when reading narrative text. And quite honestly, one of my committee members said, you could have done better. Now, I'm glad to say I passed the dissertation <laughs> defense, but you know, she was right. There were probably a hundred studies at the time taking a look at miscue analysis. So while my study did something a little different in terms of the age and reading control, chronological age and reading control, it really did not add that much to the literature. I think I've kind of tracked it over time. It's been uh, referenced seven times, so really hasn't had much of an impact over time. <laughs> At the same time that Anita Sunby said that to me, I was having, you know, during the last two or three years as a doctoral student, having to really write for real purposes. Mm -hmm. And I realized what a challenge it was. And as part of that challenge in terms of becoming better, I started reading reviews in uh, the Paris Review from professional writers, people like Hemingway and Mailer and other folks who had been very successful. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, this is what I'm interested in. Probably not the thing you want to decide right at the end of your PhD program <laughs> that you want to shift focus. But I was so taken by how these professional writers talked about their craft, 
and how they did it. And I was starting to feel that maybe I could become a, a fairly good writer that I shifted my focus to writing. Now, I've never left my love for reading and sure. my writing and reading research that I do complement each other, but probably a very backdoor into what became kind of a lifetime of session. Serendipitous, because you've really made so many contributions. And so, you know, better late than never, I guess, when it comes to finding the thing that you want to work on. So your article does such a wonderful job of outlining the four catalysts for writing growth, things like knowledge, strategies, basic skills, motivation, and then you explore the evidence that shows that they're catalysts and you discuss the efficacy of existing interventions. So much there for people to read and learn about. I was struck by so many things in your paper, and I think people really need to sit down and read it carefully. There's just a ton of good research and overviews in there. But given that we don't have time to talk about everything in your article, I do want to touch on a few points. And first, you talk about how writing strategies are important and they're amenable to intervention. And I'm hoping you can talk a bit about the self-regulated strategy development approach and the evidence for its effects. Well, my wife, Karen Harris, often talks about when we first met, I was an assistant professor at Auburn University, and she was a doctoral student in special education there. And we worked for about a year together before we started knowing each other romantically. And she often talks about our marriage as kind of the marriage of our careers. I was interested in writing, as I mentioned before, and she had been doing work that focused in on Don Meikenbaum's work involving teaching self-talk and cognitive strategies. And so we started thinking about how could we put this together? We were both interested at that point in making an impact in terms of children's writing. And so one of the things that, that was going on at that time is the cognitive revolution was in its full swing. Mm -hmm. And we were starting to have a better understanding of the different strategies that writers use as they wrote. And so she put together the self-regulated strategy development model, and I developed a number of the strategies that were taught to kids. Mm -hmm. And as we worked through this, you know, we drew a lot on our experience as teachers, to be quite honest, although SRSD is grounded in theoretical positions and also empirical evidence. But one of the things that we had noticed when we were working with kids with special needs is that often they approach tasks without being very strategic, mm -hmm. whether it was reading, writing, or mathematics. The knowledge that they brought to those tasks was often incomplete or poorly organized is maybe a way of thinking about it. Mm. Often they didn't have the skills they needed for carrying out the strategies. And uh, many of the kids really didn't want to have anything to do with either writing, reading, or math because they'd had multiple years of finding it very challenging and not being very successful. So as Karen designed SRSD, uh, that was taken into to account. So we wanted to have you know, these strategies, say like a planning drafting strategy for creating a, a narrative or a persuasive text, that we made sure that students had the knowledge they needed to carry out that strategy successfully, that they had the self-regulation skills needed to make sure that they could use the strategy successfully. And in terms of thinking about the self-regulation, and we also wanted to be sure that that could also touch on the writing process and students' behavior. And so we focused in on four specific things. One was goal setting. Another was self-monitoring and self-assessment. Another was self-reinforcement. 
And the fourth, for some kids, not all, was the type of talk or self-instructions that they gave to themselves. And so we would individualize those self-regulation processes as instruction was provided so that they could use goal setting, self-assessment, self-instructions, and self-reinforcement to make sure they were successful for each of those with each of those strategies that they were putting into play and also the process of writing and sometimes their writing behavior. Now, the motivational end, um, our basic point was that, um, you know, nothing succeeds like success. So mm-hmm. if you have the skills, the strategy, the knowledge to carry out something successfully, most likely you're going to feel more confident in your capabilities. You're going to be more positive. Mm-hmm. about that particular task later, and you're going to be more likely to persevere. And we tried to make that as explicit as possible so that we set up the instruction, or Karen set up the instruction, so that initially we would have students you know, write something, and we'd put that away. And the students would score it, but we wouldn't really talk about it. And then we'd introduce the strategies and self-regulation procedures And what we would do is the initial composition that students wrote, we modeled with them helping us do it. And then we gradually released control of our, you know, involvement in it so that students took more and more of the responsibility to eventually they were doing it with peers and then doing it by themselves. But all along the way, they're monitoring and recording how they're doing. And we'd have them compare that back to their initial performance. So it was almost like a no-lose situation. Because obviously, if you're coming at this, you're not very skilled at it. The first time you do it with somebody who is pretty skilled at it, you're going to do quite well. And then you keep doing well as you work with that person, but you get more control. And then as you start working with somebody else. So we thought that that would help with both self-efficacy and more positive attitudes towards writing. So Mm -hmm. those four things were really very important to us, the uh, strategies, the motivation, the knowledge, and the skills needed to carry out the task successfully. And in your article, you mentioned that the SRSD is one of the most studied interventions out there. And I, I think you're right. I just, I can't think of another one that has been so extensively studied, nor can I think of one that has had such strong effects. I mean, it just, it really seems to be incredibly effective. Why do you think that is? What's the secret sauce? I think there's a couple of things here. Part of it's the secret sauce, which I'll talk about in a second. But part of it is also a lot of the studies we've conducted have been uh, either true experiments or randomized control trials. And often the comparison is business as usual. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not always, but often. And one of the things I think it's, you know, I hate to say this, but I think it's basically the case is that the business as usual is not a strong comparison in many instances. Mm -hmm. So automatically, if you're doing something that's systematic, explicit, and that addresses skills, strategy, process, knowledge, and will that students need, you're most likely going to get a positive effect. Now, in terms of what are the active ingredients in this, I think it all comes back to self-regulation in some part. The strategies that students are taught help them organize their behavior before, during, and after the writing process. And when we initially started with kids with special needs, often their approach to writing was, you know, they would think of something that was relevant to the prompt. So if I asked them to write a story about a cow in the field, 
they might say, well, you know, Bessie was a cow and she lived out in the field. And then that would serve as a stimulus for the next item. Well, you know, the field had a lot of grass and flowers in it, which would serve as in the next item. And she liked to eat grass. But you can see that's not a very thoughtful or planful way to create a story. Mm -hmm. So the planning strategies and drafting and revising strategies that we taught were primarily built around the basic building blocks of a story, or in the case of a persuasive argument, a persuasive argument. So not only are you being more thoughtful up front about what you're doing and thinking it through, but you're also using the building blocks of that particular genre to help you think of ideas to include mm. in the composition. So it helps regulate your behavior as a writer. Mm. Also bringing in the aspects of goal setting and self-monitoring, what that does is the kids would set goals to use parts of the strategy or other things that they were learning. And so they could monitor that and see their success at it and making sure that they had the knowledge of what constitutes a good story, what mm. constitutes good writing, also was very helpful as well. And then being able to see their progress over time, making it visible, I think helped in terms of having the motivation and perseverance when things got a little bit tough. You know, we've tried to isolate the ingredients through component analysis study. And, and I can say with you, we know that the self-regulation procedures like goal setting and self-assessment make a difference, half a standard deviation difference in terms of writing quality but they're not the whole story here. I think it really is the sum total of the parts working together. Mm. And I'll mention one other thing, and I can't really draw on data to support this, but when Karen designed SRSD, the basic idea was that it was not time-based, it was criterion-based. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of studies that have been carried out by other people that use a time-based approach, and it's been very successful there. But I don't want to let go of that idea that when we make something criterion-based, you know, we're keeping in sight all of the students in our class or all of the students that we're working with and making sure that everybody progresses. I do understand why a number of other researchers have made it time-based because it's difficult to get something like that operating in schools where you're more focused on, has everybody mastered this before we make the next leap forward? And that pressure is real. Yeah. At the same time, I, I agree with you that, you know, if if some students haven't yet mastered whatever they're working on, they probably need some more time to do that. We should probably find ways to allocate that time so that it makes some sense to me why a criterion based approach might be so effective. And you talked about these active ingredients and it really feels like that particular intervention pulled together so many of the catalysts that you talked about. Another catalyst that you mentioned in your paper and that you mentioned when you're talking about the SRSD is motivation. And I have to say, when you reviewed the literature in your paper, I was somewhat surprised to read that the evidence for the relationship between writing motivation and writing growth is a little mixed. And the evidence for the interventions is also kind of a little mixed. I'm wondering if you have thoughts about why that might be. Yeah, you know, that was a surprise to us because in terms of looking at writing in general, we put a couple of different benchmarks out there for determining if something like motivation or knowledge or strategies or skills actually do have an effect. And one of those is that we would expect that there would be an association between levels of motivation individually amongst students and their performance. Mm -hmm. And likewise, we would expect that efforts to improve motivation 
would have a positive carryover effect to how well students write. That seems to me to be a basic component of, of making a decision. And the evidence is not quite as clear cut here. And so one of the things that we see is that, you know, in some studies, you see motivation staying the same across grades. You mm-hmm. see motivation declining. And then when an intervention's mm-hmm. provided, sometimes it goes up, sometimes it stays the same. And in a few instances, we've seen it go down. Oops. And so I think one of the things to keep in mind about this is that when you take a look at how students feel about writing, and I'm talking about students in general now, when they come into school in kindergarten and first grade, just like in reading, they're pretty positive about writing and reading. And one of the things that we see in writing is that if you think about motivation as as a class of behaviors, that starts to decline in the area of writing across the grades. I mean, there's a lot of possible reasons for that. You know, one, we ask students to do writing that's really not very motivating or meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Second, it's a very difficult skill. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to learn to become a good writer. And so that can be very daunting for some students. But we see this decline. In reading, you tend to see a leveling off, you know, so you don't see kids kind of drop in their motivational efforts. Then when you look at specific aspects of motivation, you see a lot of variability. So for example, as students are progressing as writing, most often you see something like self-efficacy rising over time, but not always. One of the things we've seen with some kids is once we've taught them something, they start to realize how difficult writing is and their efficacy actually goes down. Mm -hmm. So their writing performance goes up, but they tend to... I think, judge what it takes to be a good writer or a confident writer more harshly. When we take a look at something like intrinsic motivation, we get some surprises there. So we have some studies now uh, looking at kids who are emergent bilingual in terms of our thinking about them. They're learning English at the same time, sometimes where they're still mastering their heritage language or have mastered it. And, you know, I think a lot of people say, oh, these guys aren't going to be as motivated writing, say, intrinsically. And what we find is that they're more motivated intrinsically than native English speakers. So there's a lot of surprises that pop up in terms of motivation and writing. And I think, you know, if you ask me where we're at in terms of our grasp on this, this is one of the areas that I think a lot more research needs to be done, you know, both to understand how to increase motivation while at the same time improving writing and at the same time, why this seems to be so variable and changes not only over time, both up and down and sometimes staying constant, but between students in terms of why some are more, say, intrinsically motivated or more self-efficacious or positive about writing than others. So it's, I think it's one of the challenging areas and one of the areas right now I'm most interested in. It seems very, very complex. One of the great things about your article is that you actually outline across these four catalysts kind of where some directions are for future research. And so I'm kind of curious for our listeners who are early career scholars and interested in exploring writing and writing research, you mentioned motivation. Are there other areas that you think, gosh, this would be a great place for people to do some research and really make a difference? Well, yeah, I think one of the things, and I didn't talk about this in the article, But I think one of the things to keep in mind that how we view and think about writing is rapidly changing. Mm. You know, I read a a paper in the New York Times recently. The author was making the point that, and I I think he's right, 
that in the very near future, when we write digitally with word processors or computers, it's going to be a combined effort between us mm-hmm. and the computer. Mm-hmm. It's already that in some ways because you know I get help from a spell checker. I'm not a great speller. My grammar could be better. I love having those tools. But I think as the future progresses, we're going to get more and more help and assistance from the digital tool. Mm-hmm. That's going to be increasingly as we become more sophisticated at building the right programs, like working with another author. And so it raises the question of what is writing. This also came up for me very poignantly in a group that I worked with that was put together by a scholar named Chuck Bazerman at University of California, Irvine. Mm -hmm. About 10 people from kind of different viewpoints, cognitive, social, social, cultural, linguistic, adult writing, uh, very young children's writing, school-age children's writing, came together once a year for about five years to talk about writing development across the lifespan. Mm-hmm. We couldn't really agree on an adequate definition of writing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was kind of funny is that Chuck, who was leading this group, his wife is a poet. And I saw them a couple of years ago and asked his wife about the poetry she did. And at that particular point in time, it involved no words. It involved only sounds. I'm sure she would have defined that as writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so our kind of definition of how we write and what writing is, is in flux. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to need to do a better job of getting a handle on this in the near future. And I think, you know, it's the way that writing is headed. You know, just as an example, if you have a smartphone, speech to text synthesis is, you know, your buddy, Mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. You can speak into the phone It records your ideas in print, and it sends it, say, in a text to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Now, you couldn't have imagined doing that at the same level 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But now speech-to-text synthesis is an essential part of our communication through writing across the world. So I think we need more study in that particular area and not just qualitative research looking at how these tools are used, but also how we can make them more effective, more accessible, to Mm -hmm. all learners and Mm -hmm. how these are going to interact with other aspects of schooling, like reading and learning. Mm, Great point. Yeah. So it's funny. It reminds me the, this morning I was taking some notes on my iPad and I was using Microsoft Word and it kept trying to insert the next couple words. It would say, you know, do you want to write this next? And I just had to swipe to accept it, but it was actually trying to anticipate what I was trying to write. And in some cases, it wasn't what I wanted to write. And yeah. I was wondering, like, how does this affect people that are learning to write or are still working on writing? It sounds very, very complex, as you mentioned. Well, so, you know, what you're talking about is a program that's, I'm sure, is a word prediction program. And so for students with learning disabilities, it's commonly been used. And for people, say, with physical motor difficulties. Mm-hmm. So if you think about typing out the word elephant, and you have pretty severe motor issues, that can be a real challenge. But what word prediction does is it takes a look at what you've written so far, and then the letters that you've written in a word and predicts ahead Mm -hmm. uh, what it thinks you're going to say. And in some word prediction programs, not the one that you were using, but ones for kids, it might show you three alternatives, and you pick, pick which one you want. And You can also program these programs so that things that kids commonly misspell, like an individual kid, 
will be in there and automatically correct those spellings. Mm -hmm. So you can see for kids who find writing challenging and have specific kinds of issues with writing, it can be very helpful. But I also, like you, find it very annoying um, <laughs> when I write because I don't want to see what the machine is thinking that I'm going to be doing in the next two words or so. Yeah, it further illustrates the complexity and the variability by person, by context, uh, culture, and norms. I mean, there there are times where I'm sure the computer is going to phrase something better than I could have. But like you, there's times where I'm like, stop doing that. I don't want you to tell me how to write. All this kind of reminds me of your writers within community model and kind of your broader perspective on writing. Can you talk a little bit about that model? Yeah. So I'm going to take this way back on this mm -hmm. one a little bit. So when I started as a teacher, I was a special education teacher in a rural school in South Georgia. And the master's program that I went to at the time, this was 1973, 1974, if you were looking at theory and special education, it was behavioral. And behavioral theory is still very prominent in special education and, and should be. You know, it's been very, very helpful in terms of thinking about how to work with a wide variety of students with very serious special needs. When I started my doctoral program at the University of Kansas, which also is a very behavioral place, there happened to be a young professor there, assistant professor who had cognitive orientation to learning and developed mm -hmm. an approach called the learning strategies approach. I took a couple of classes from him and fell in love with cognition and everything that was going on around it. Unfortunately, in my world, and I hate to say this, in a lot of the academic world around literacy, the two kind of major competing theoretical viewpoints are cognition and social or social cultural, depending on your viewpoint. And so as I did my work with a cognitive orientation, you know, other people with a like-minded orientation tended to be more likely to read what I would write than people, say, who had a very social, cultural, social orientation, and the research methodologies that we used often differed. I use quantitative, often they use qualitative, although I've used both over the course of my career. And I was very frustrated with this. And I'm not the only one. I mean, people on the social cultural side, like Chuck Bazerman, who I mentioned earlier, was also very stymied by this. Mm -hmm. And so together, we did a number of things to try to get at the root of this. And part of the group that he brought together, this was part of the issue that we were trying to address by having all of these different viewpoints at the table so that we could kind of hash it out. And one of the great things about this is that when you put people with different viewpoints together, but who are interested in the same thing, and they come together in good faith, then one of the things that happens is that I think the people participating in that, they're likely to learn and change. And so the WWC model, Writers Within Community model, was after five years of meeting together and, and hashing out our ideas, and that forced me to think about my own ideas more carefully. That was my response to this rift that exists within the field of writing mm -hmm. in terms of how we view it. Mm -hmm. And so I agree with folks on the social cultural end that writing is a social activity, and we have to think about the social context, political, historical, cultural, et cetera, context in which it operates to understand it well. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's a very complex cognitive activity. And ignoring either side of that equation 
I think, leads to a very limited view of writing and how we can help children and others become better writers and the best writers they can be. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where I came at this uh, in terms of thinking about it. And surprisingly, I can't find another model at this point where both of those viewpoints have been put together in writing. That's not mm-hmm. to say that they haven't been put together in other areas of educational psychology. Writing has just been very resistant against that over time. Hmm. But it, it has clearly helped me think about writing in a more comprehensive way, and I think in a sharper way. Mm-hmm. And it's also made it important to me to make sure that I listen to all sides of an argument better than I did before I, I went down this path. Well, and it, it certainly takes into account so many things that are important when you're trying to assess things like writing quality or the persuasiveness of writing or the success of writing. I mean, genre and culture and context are all so important to understanding whether writing was successful. So it makes sense to me that it's equally as important as the cognition, the mechanics, the fluency that happens with writing. And it brings me to a different part of your paper where you talked about some research you did on the ways in which people teach writing. One of the things that you found in your article was that there were some ways that exceptional literacy teachers facilitated writing growth. What were those ways? Well, I'm going to expand it out just a little bit on that. We've taken kind of three approaches, or really four, I guess, uh, to thinking about this issue of classroom instruction. One is we've surveyed teachers to get a sense of what they're doing. And mm-hmm. currently, we're expanding on that by doing a survey, but but asking teachers to tell us what they're doing every day. And we're also doing observational studies. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that I can say something even more interesting in the near future. But at the same time, if you're going to observe or survey what other people do and then express an opinion on it, then my view is you better have something to offer Mm -hmm. in addition. And so on the survey research, we find that some teachers and some schools appear to do a great job of teaching writing. But for the most part, across the world, and we've been responsible for some of that research and and our colleagues in other countries have done much of it as well. We don't see much writing on the part of students, and we don't see much in the way of teaching writing. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then what are the kinds of things that teachers could be doing that increase the likelihood of their success and their students' success? And I want to emphasize the word likelihood here. Mm -hmm. And that is, I don't believe that something I do in a research experiment is necessarily going to be effective in another teacher's classroom somewhere else. If I can replicate that multiple times or other people can replicate it, then I think it increases the probability of success. Or I can say to teachers, hey, you know, here's something that was used by other teachers and it worked in six different studies or contexts. You know what? It may be something that would be useful to you in your context. Uh, but you're going to have to make that decision. So with that as a background, we've approached this study in three different ways. One, we've done the traditional meta-analysis, taking a look at quasi-experimental studies and true experiments and randomized controlled trials to see which kinds of writing practices have evidence that support them. The second is we've taken a look at what are called single-case design studies, which often involve a small number of participants and a different logic behind them to establish causal inferences to see 
what's been effective there? And then the third, and where you directed your question, is we've taken a look at qualitative studies that involve exceptional literacy teachers. And then we treated each one of those studies as a case. Okay. And then we go through them as you would in a qualitative study to see what patterns or themes exist in them. And so the really satisfying thing in terms of doing this is when we take a look at the things that we've identified in the meta-analysis with true and quasi-experiments, the interventions that have been successful, and in single participant designs, there's a lot of overlap. And the really, truly satisfying things, those are the same things that really exceptional teachers are using when they teach kids. Mm -hmm. So what that says to me is that I'm much more confident about saying to teachers, you know, if you teach kids strategies for planning in different genres, or you encourage them to plan up front before they write, we found this to be effective, not only in these kind of high level experimental studies and the single case studies, but it's what your colleagues are doing who are really skilled at this. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an important part of thinking about what's effective in general. And it also, again, brings together, as I was mentioning earlier, different viewpoints about what counts, not only in terms of research, but in terms of writing itself. And it's, it's wonderful that you have kind of multimodal data. You, you've got experiments, you've got observations, you've got testimony, and all these things when they cohere, as you said, it really makes a strong case that it's something that a teacher should consider. And that word likelihood is indeed very important, right? Because just like in your model, culture and context really matters. And it could be that it works really well in 95% of the cultures and contexts, but not in the one that that teacher happens to be in. So I'm glad that you've framed it that way. And your article has a wonderful table kind of outlining all those studies and the findings that you pulled together. So something I've noticed as we've talked is this article comes from a career achievement award. It's kind of, it's the highest honor our division bestows and it's, it's well, well deserved, but you use the word we a lot and you talk about other people a lot, which I think is fantastic. And I think collaboration seems to be something that you do a lot and really value. So I'm hoping that you can talk to us a little bit about the role of collaboration in your career and any advice you might have for other scholars who are interested in building productive collaborations. I'm glad that you asked this. I, I think this is essential to being a strong scholar today. I'm not saying that some people can't be successful working on their own, but I think you increase the odds of being impactful. And I, to me, that's what the most important thing is, having an impact in the real world. I love theory. I love research. But the bottom line is what's going to happen in people's lives. Mm -hmm. In terms of thinking about this, I had a great starting point because, you know, I have a wife who I work with and have worked with for 40 years. Mm -hmm. So I had a built-in collaborator. We've been lucky in a lot of ways because we've been at places where there have been other people who are interested in writing, sometimes the same aspects as we are and sometimes others. But that's extremely motivating because you have somebody to bounce your ideas off of. And believe me, I can't tell you how many times a friend of mine, Charles MacArthur, has said to me, that's a really dumb idea. Um, <laughs> and you know what? He saved me a lot of pain because, you know, I would have been full steam ahead and done something that, you know, didn't pass the so what test, so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. The other thing in terms of thinking about this, you know, the two things I mentioned before is one, you can do more 
you have people to collaborate with, it's motivating. Those things are all very important, but collaborators make you smarter. You know, mm -hmm. Charles MacArthur example was a great one, but having collaborators both in the US that have different viewpoints than I have and collaborators in Europe, in South America, in China, in Turkey right now, I just learned so much because one, I have to become familiar with what writing involves in their culture and their situation. And they come at this in different ways than I do. And so I have a better understanding, not a complete, but a better understanding of what writing looks like, not only in my neck of the woods now, but other people's neck of the woods. And that makes it even better in a lot of ways. The other point on this is that you can't do everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't care how skilled you are. Just think of something like what we know about conducting statistical analysis now. It left me behind about 15 years ago. I still do a lot of my statistical analysis, but invariably I seek out somebody with much stronger skills than what I have so that we can, you know, do the best look at the data possible instead of relying on skills of my own that haven't grown with the time, so to speak. I will often look for people who are interested in something a little different than I am because it forces me to think about that, but it also drags me or drives me, whichever way you want to look at it, into doing something different and something new. Mm -hmm. And so I, I can't speak loudly or broadly or enough about how important it is to have colleagues who work with you. And quite honestly, you can never talk about award, this particular award that we're talking about without saying the word we. It should never be thought of as given to an individual. It's a group of individuals over time who have put their heads together and persevered and worked hard and come up with something that other people find valuable, mm -hmm. hopefully. Well, and just your attitude towards it, I think, is likely one of the reasons why you've been so successful at it. You know, when you reach out and you ask questions and you're genuinely curious and you seek knowledge and you want to learn more, I think others want to work with people like that. And so collaboration is easier when someone approaches a person with a genuine sense of, I want to understand what's happening. I want to know what you know. Let's, let's build something together. That sounds like a great way to start any collaboration. Well, thank you, Jeff. So we've talked a lot about your article. It's really wonderful. I encourage people to read it. Let's spend just a moment talking about what you're currently working on. What's exciting to you right now? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, I have, <laughs> This is going to sound really crazy when I talk about some of these things, but I have six meta-analysis going on right now. Um, as my wife would say, ever since I kind of discovered meta-analysis a little late in the game, I'm like, you know, a toy with a hammer. I'm constantly <laughs> putting that hammer into play. But uh, we're just finishing up a meta-analysis looking at the effects of reading-specific instruction with kids who are emergent bilingual and reading. I've got mm. two really large meta-analysis going on, taking a look at elementary and the other one at secondary writing instruction. And mm. it's, they differ from the previous ones we've done in that instead of just looking at writing quality, we're looking at all kinds of writing and reading measures, mm -hmm. including process, product, motivation, et cetera. I'm very excited about those. We're also mm -hmm. taking a look at the effects of writing instruction on students' efficacy to see if that improves. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. not been an area that's been investigated. And 
have always, for whatever reason, been interested in spelling. We have a very large meta-analysis taking a look at spelling interventions versus spelling interventions. We've done a meta-analysis taking a look at what happens if you teach spelling. Does spelling get better? Does writing get better? Does reading get better? But that excluded a lot of studies because we were trying to isolate the effects of spelling that actually compared different spelling instructional procedures one to the other. Mm. And then we're Mm -hmm. also working on a meta-analysis looking at what kinds of instructional practices move the needle on persuasive writing. So I'm very, very excited about that. Mm-hmm. In terms of collaboration, I'm working with people in Norway right now, taking a look at the effects of COVID-19 on students' writing. And mm-hmm. uh, we have mm-hmm. a follow-up study to an earlier study with kids two years out from the, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we're also doing a first-grade study looking at what happens to writing across the years and a very, very large instructional study involving a couple of thousand kids there. Mm. I have colleagues in China that I'm working with now also on a developmental study from seventh to ninth grade, looking at writing development and reading and writing motivation. And Mm. we're starting some new studies around SRSD there. I'm working with an SRSD study in Turkey with some colleagues there and working on a qualitative study in Chile taking a look at barriers and facilitators, should have started facilitators and barriers mm-hmm. to urban teachers writing instruction there. So I'm really excited about that kind of work outside the country. And I have an appointment that just ended at a learning science center in Australia, where I'm working with colleagues there around writing and some on engagement. So quite a bit of stuff going on, but I'm really particularly enjoying the meta-analysis and the the work with my colleagues outside the U.S. Well, and you know, I can tell you won this award and you've just started slacking off. Boy, you just don't have any projects going on and on, do you, Steve? Yeah, you know, that's that's always the problem. If you like doing something, you keep doing more of it. (laughs) Sounds fascinating. The meta-analog work is so important and your work looking at what has happened as a result of COVID-19 is critically important. So thank you for doing that. So, Steve, I I know in addition to all the important scholarship that you do, that you've actually been an editor of a number of journals. And I'm just curious if you have any lessons learned or ideas about being an editor. I've been an editor for 20 years, I think, at this point, almost continuously up to a year or two ago. And that's involved journals in special education, uh, educational psychology and writing. And I got to tell you, it's a lot of work. There's no two ways about it. And you're making people unhappy all the time because (laughs) you're doing a lot more rejecting than you are accepting. But it's been one of the most important experiences in my life. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that it has forced me, and I'm saying forced here, to read more broadly than I would have done normally. So when I was the editor of Exceptional Children, I'm interested in kids with high incidence disabilities you know, kids we often refer to as having a learning disability or ADHD or, you know, emotional behavioral difficulties. My knowledge about areas like deaf education, visual difficulties or autism, et cetera, was pretty thin, to be quite honest. And one of the things by being an editor of a research journal in the field is that when manuscripts come in and I have to make a decision what to do with them, I needed to read them. Mm-hmm. And boy, I'll tell you what, that was great because it expanded out my understanding of what was going on within the area that was my initial love and basically will be my final love. 
uh, mm-hmm. which is special education. When I was the editor of Journal Educational Psychology, you know, I'm interested in writing. Well, the side show is reading and the side show is learning. But by being the editor of JEP, when papers come in and, and when I finish, they're about 800 a year, I would have to look at those studies. I'd have to look at those papers. Mm-hmm. I had to make decisions whether to go forward with them, who to assign them to. I can't tell you how much that expanded my view of the world in terms of educational research. Mm-hmm. So the point here is that you can do that in other ways, right? The point is to read broadly. Mm-hmm. Too often what we do is we get stuck in our area, writing for me or special education or, you know, literacy and young kids. And when you read broadly, whether it's as an editor or as a reader or consumer of research, you get new ideas, you get new ways of thinking about things. I really can't suggest anything stronger than reading, Mm -hmm. whichever way you do it. But it makes you more knowledgeable. It makes you a better researcher. It makes you a better teacher. And it makes you a better colleague. Totally agree. And that's really insightful. So thank you for sharing that. And I, I just want to concur. You know, the, the more different things I encounter as an editor, the more I feel like I'm growing and coming up with new ideas about my own scholarship. So it's a joy to be exposed to all of that work. And it's also a lot of work to be exposed to all of that work. So, yeah. so thank you for doing all that work as an editor as well. So while we wrap it up here for today, um, I really encourage our listeners to check out your 2022 article in Educational Psychologist entitled A Walk Through the Landscape of Writing, Insights from a Program of Writing Research. Steve, thanks so much for talking to me today. Well, thank you so much for asking me to do this. And, you know, I really had a good time doing it. Thank you so much, Jeff. Me too. Thanks. Thanks.